Hey everybody, this is Pastor Chad. Welcome to The Way, R122 Ministry Live, The Way Radio Live. Today is Sunday, November 21st, 2021. The title of today's message is Asking, Seeking, Knocking, based on Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Uh, I told you guys last week I'd continue with Galatians this week, and I apologize. Um, I'm still just really taking my time uh, enjoying studying once again the book of Galatians, reading through it slowly. I've got tons of notes, and I just uh, haven't figured out exactly which points I want to focus on in the next sermon. Um, it's one of the challenges when you're studying and preaching God's word. Uh, there's so much to cover, you got to figure out which parts the Holy Spirit really wants you to address. And I'm still waiting for that, so I'm still working on it. Should be back into it next week. Uh, but this is one of my favorite topics that I'm getting into today, asking, seeking, knocking. The topic of prayer from one of my favorite portions of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew chapter 7. But before I get into that, I wanted to just look briefly at this article that I came across this morning. Um, uh, this came through from the newsletter that I get from Robert F. Kennedy's organization, uh, childrenshealthdefense.org, and he has a newsletter called The Defender. And this was was in uh, one of the articles in that newsletter, and it's about the next phase, I guess, uh, that Facebook and Zuckerberg is looking at moving into, the next stage of depravity, really, that they, they are hoping to take people into. Uh, the title of the, the article is Metaverse Will Trap Us in Virtual Reality and Position Zuckerberg as World's Largest Landlord. And it's written by Jeremy Lafredo, again, at um, it's in the Defender at childrenshealthdefense.org. And the article says, Facebook's parent company has a new name, Metaverse. And according to Mark Zuckerberg, the company also has a new mission to be the successor to the mobile internet and a virtual environment where we can hang out, shop, and work. But journalist and political commentator Emily Jasinski has a different take on Zuckerberg's Metaverse. She says, one of the most powerful companies in human history is planning to trap us in virtual reality, Jasinski said. Jasinski told viewers of The Hills Rising, Zuckerberg is rapidly positioning himself to be the world's largest landlord, and he is using the same utopian language he used 15 years ago to convince everyone that Facebook would be a global force for good. Jasinski said the difference between now and then is now we know he wields his power to make us angrier lonelier, dumber, less healthy, and more addicted. He's been tested and he's failed, she said. In July, Zuckerberg explained his plans for the metaverse in what Jasinski termed a deeply disturbing interview with The Verge. In the interview, Zuckerberg said he envisioned a future where everyone sported virtual reality-equipped eyeglasses, allowing people to engage in with the internet more naturally. Now, when I read when I read that, the first thing I thought about, okay, that's a stage, and then they'll go from eyeglasses to some kind of implant to where you can be on the internet in your head, and that does not seem far fetched. They're already working on that. He described the metaverse as a persistent synchronous environment where we can be together, which I think is 
is probably going to resemble some kind of a hybrid between the social platforms we see today, but an environment where you're embodied in it, like you're inside the internet. Jasinski said the same month, The Verge published its interview with Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg told the New York Times, Facebook's, Facebook, Facebook's hope is that one day people will host religious services in virtual reality spaces and use augmented reality as an educational tool to teach their children the story of their faith. Now, this is difficult for me because I'll be honest with you, I, I hate Facebook. I don't really spend much time on it anymore. Uh, for anybody out there, I did want to say, I, I know a lot of people send me messages on Facebook. I've probably got a thousand or so built up. Uh, I don't respond. I don't pay attention to anything like that on Facebook because I don't like being on Facebook. I use it to to do what we're doing here on Sundays because there are people I know that like to listen to the sermons from different areas around the world. And I want to be able to reach as many as I can with the gospel. But I really do not like Facebook at all. So I try to spend as little time as possible on it um, other than when I'm on on Sundays. But this really struck me. People will host religious services in virtual reality spaces and use augmented reality as an educational tool to teach their children the story of their faith. Um, one question that came to mind here is, wouldn't if they want to have everybody engaged virtually rather than engaged one on one, rather than actually, you know, meeting together and, uh, you know, having a cup of coffee together, you know, meeting like people in, in England love to meet in the pub. I love that idea. Uh, we here in America meet at coffee shops or whatever. They would rather have everybody. What they're, what I see here is, is their dream is to have everybody not worry about meeting physically, but meeting virtually and artificially. And that would benefit them greatly because they would gain, they would gain complete control over human interaction and everything that humans do. And we already see that they now try to completely control thought and speech and news, anything that doesn't agree with the agenda that they are seeking to uh, move forward, they simply eliminate. They just call out anything that doesn't agree with, with the agenda that they are striving to proclaim or, or trying to enforce anything that's contrary to that, which Christianity usually is, and the truth usually is, especially with what's going on with the COVID hoax, they just put up a warning or they just shut those people down and cancel them uh, completely from those platforms. So they gain a lot more control that way. So the point I'm trying to make is, doesn't locking people down, making it impossible for them to go out and meet together completely buy in to this business model that Zuckerberg's talking about here with Facebook. These social media platforms would gain complete control if people never left their homes or if they did not very often, if we were pretty much just trapped in our homes. So can't you see how the COVID hoax and what it's done could play very much into their plans? It's just very interesting how this is all coming about. And it shows us another reason why we have to make a stand and fight back against these draconian, tyrannical measures that are taking place in so many places in the world. So again, uh, so then it continues. Sandberg told the Times, faith organizations and social media are a natural fit because fundamentally both are about connection. 
And again, like I said, this is difficult for me because I wish uh, the people that are that are listening to me in different places around the world, the people that listen to my podcast, had good churches to go to. But that quite often is not the case. You know, as we've talked about before, probably 90 percent of the church, at least here in America, is apostate, if not completely heretical and, and not preaching the gospel. So I, for years, especially through the Recovery Reformation ministry, I've had people contacting me saying I cannot find a solid biblical church in my area. So social media can be used for good. And I believe that's what we're we're doing here now. But I think what we're going to have to try to figure out is what is the line that we draw and say, okay, this is where we exit social media. This is no longer acceptable because they're trying to gain too much control. So it's just things that I think we need to think about when we hear this. It continues. Jasinski said, metaverse is cloaking its new technology in the very same language that Facebook was pitched to us. Uh, she says it explained. She explained how Facebook was originally described as a fuzzy, abstract technology that will connect us, and uh, the connection will be wonderful. We now know this presumption was naive and destructive. Jasinski said, "The oligarchical plan to transfer more of our lives onto their platforms should be regarded as nothing short of an emergency." Worship is just one aspect of everyday life Meta wants to substitute for virtual reality, Jasinski said. Their control over the coming virtual spaces will give them uh, more control over the human experience and our culture. Jasinski told viewers platforms like Metaverse are cynically positioning themselves as basically the real estate kingpins of the future because they want to be the global landlord of every virtual reality church gym and office space. Notice the commercials that are pushing uh, memberships for workout programs that you do in your home. You don't go to the gym, you get the equipment, you do it in your home, and it's all done virtually. You're working out with people on a screen. This is what they're trying to tell us is a good thing. It's not a good thing and it's not healthy. And another point I wanted to make, and, and I and I know this, this is very much my own opinion, but I think it's true. One thing I've seen with Christianity on Facebook is it's one thing to, you know, if you're a preacher, to publish your sermon on Facebook, uh, to get it out there so people can hear it and hopefully benefit from it. But one thing that I very strongly feel is overall, the Christian message, the Christian gospel, the Christian church is cheapened when it's presented on a social media platform. And what I mean by that is, is it's very obvious that uh, social media plays very much into a narcissistic, egotistical uh, mind frame of people screaming for recognition, trying to have a voice, uh, trying to be recognized. There's very little seeking for truth. And when I first, when I was heavily engaged in social media uh, quite a few years ago now, and I was engaged in debates, in debates, trying to defend the gospel, uh, trying to expose the false teachings of like Alcoholics Anonymous and Celebrate Recovery. One thing I learned is there's really no seeking for truth. People are simply there to make the point that they believe they want to make, regardless of anything contrary to that that they're presented with. And what that showed me is that uh, I don't believe social media is a, is a good platform for the gospel. Yes, you can reach more people, but I have not, I've seen very little effect from that. That's the point I'm trying to make. 
And that's why my message from a couple of weeks ago, I think we have to pay attention to the, the fact that the Holy Spirit uses that small voice, those efforts that are done in humility and with a pure heart, even if we're only preaching to one or two people, and he'll take that true, passionate work from the heart, and he'll expand that more than he will do through something like social media. And I firmly believe that. So the point I'm trying to make is, as Christians, this is very much a time when we have to be in the written word. And I'm not talking about reading the Bible on your computer, reading the Bible on your phone. I'm talking about a paper printed old fashioned Bible on your lap, taking notes in a written journal and rejecting so much of this technology that has infiltrated our lives and is doing so much damage in the lives of believers and in the lives of people in society at large. And the reason now is especially a good time to really start moving away from these things is because of a glimpse into what they have planned. Because what I see from this article is Zuckerberg's dream would be, like I said, people do not leave their houses. You do everything virtually. Read the book uh, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. It's been quite a few years since I read it. But in that book, People don't go on vacation. You take a pill. I believe it was called Soma. And this would basically send you on this trip anywhere you wanted to go mentally. It was virtually inside your head and it was drug induced. So you didn't actually go anywhere. You experienced it, but you actually didn't do it. That is where this could lead if we're not careful. So let's turn back the clock a little bit and strive for genuine old-fashioned biblical Christianity. Christianity exploded on the world without the help of social media. And I don't believe we need it now any more than we needed it then. I'll finish the rest of the rest of this article. I got a little sidetrack. Um, according to the World Economic Forum strategic partner Cognizant, the future of work and play will in fact take place in the safer virtual world. Now, isn't that an interesting world? It's interesting word. Again, according to the World Economic Forum, strategic partner Cognizant, the future of work and play will in fact take place in the safer virtual world. Why are people told to wear masks? Because it's safer. It's not. We know they don't do anything. We know that we're supposedly protecting people against a virus with a 99.7% survival rate. We're doing nothing about starvation. Many more people around the world are dying by starvation every day than, than, than uh, COVID when it was supposedly at its peak. But it's supposed to keep you safe. The commercials pushing all day long these vaccines, what do they say? I got the vaccine because it helps, helps me feel like I'm, I'm keeping myself safe, I'm keeping my family safe, and I'm keeping my friends and, and those around me safe. You see where, how they use this? It's like a PSYOP to try to get people to think a certain way. I can't go out. Why would I go do something in public which could endanger others when I could stay in my home, put on you know some goggles or whatever, and do everything virtually? Then I'm safe. They're safe because we're not around each other. That's how they'll sell this. And I already see it working. One of the saddest things I've seen since this whole COVID hoax started is a couple months ago, I went to our P.O. box at our post office downtown here. And I went in and, and I never wear a mask. They weren't even required. And, and as I was coming out, this, this man walked in, he had a mask on and he had a little like four or five year old son with him. And, and he didn't have a mask on. And the son looked at me and he was sort of startled. And he goes, Oh, I'm sorry, sir. He goes, I forgot to put my mask on. 
And I said, you don't have to wear a mask around me. And I, that almost brought me to tears. I thought, how horrifying that this little four or five-year-old boy has been brainwashed to the point that he thinks he's a danger to others if he's not wearing his mask, or he's offensive to others if he's showing his face. Think of the damage that is being done just to children through this whole ridiculous thing. And then think about how they could, what direction that they'd like to take it that we're reading about here. The last couple paragraphs says, Cognizant claims that in 2025, after the virus, houses will be retrofitted with special offices and workspaces, which double as spaces to virtually socialize. You can't socialize because you're going to poison each other and die. The multinational technology company suggested these spaces will be fitted with cameras, soundproofing, and lighting. The company called these virtual reality rooms the new pub where you can socialize safely. Jasinski said Zuckerberg wants to normalize virtual reality worship, working, socializing, and playing, because the more time we spend in the metaverse, the more money he makes and the more control he has. Zuckerberg has spent 15 years proving he's a terrible steward of money and power. We've run the experiment and Facebook failed, she argued. I'd have to agree with her. Again, folks, the reason I like to share this stuff with you on Sundays before the sermon is because we've got to be aware of what's going on in the world around us. We've got to be aware of the level that ev of evil that is running all this crazy stuff that we see happening. It's ridiculous. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. Maybe it's a little wake-up call if you weren't aware of the direction that tr they're trying to go through this horrific platform that unfortunately we have to use right now called Facebook. All right, again, this, the name of the sermon today is Asking, Seeking, Knocking. It's based on Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Let's pray and we will get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we are blessed with the opportunity to meet at a distance, uh, to learn of you, uh, to study your word, and to fellowship. And Lord, I do pray that everyone that that hears this message, that joins us each Sunday, that listens to the podcast or watches the videos when they're uh, published on Rumble, will realize that uh, nothing is as powerful as two or three brothers and sisters in Christ meeting together personally, because where we are, we know that you are with us. And we know that you are with us as we gather here virtually, but we should never give up on the bond that's created and the special uh, fellowship that we're blessed with when we meet together in person as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let us never forsake gathering together. Let us always remember that we need to get together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to study the word together. We need to talk about it with our families. We need to be in real pubs meeting with our brothers and sisters. We need to be in real coffee shops, meeting with our brothers and sisters. We need to be in real churches. If there's one by us, near us, that we can join in, that's true. But we are told that where two or three are gathered, that's all that's needed. And I pray that we would always remember the blessing we have in that. Lord, I ask that you would open each heart and mind and spirit to the message today and that your word would go forth powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with some questions about 
prayer, and these are questions I've been presented with quite a few times over the years. How do we know when God answers our prayers? How do we see the answer? How do we know we're doing God's will rather than our own will after we've prayed about something we're going to undertake? How do we know when a door has been opened for us? Is it this door or that door? Has this door been opened by God or is it something that's enticing me at temptation from Satan? How do we know it's the right door? To help answer these questions, let's read Matthew 7, 7 through 11. If you've got your Bibles, just turn to Matthew chapter 7. And again, this is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Uh, again, I'm convinced it may sound naive, it may seem a bit generalized or simplistic, but I'm convinced that the world's problems would be mostly, if not completely, eliminated if people could simply live according to to the precepts, the principles, and the commandments that Christ laid down in the Sermon on the Mount. Unfortunately, human uh, nature just fights against that, so it's never going to happen until that day when the Lord returns, and then the Lord will be the world will function in the way that the Christ that, that the Lord taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read chapter Matthew seven, uh, verses seven through eleven, and Christ says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, give good things to those who ask him? So notice that in Christ's ministry, his disciples asked him to teach them to pray. It's really interesting. They, they outright asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Not how to preach, not how to study, not how to minister and not how to heal or work miracles, they asked him to teach them to pray. There's a huge lesson in that. And I believe that that's the, the reason they asked him to teach them to pray is because they understood that if they knew how to pray and they had a healthy prayer life, they were in constant communion with the Lord, they were fellowshipping with him and serving him, that they would automatically, through that prayer, know how to preach. They would know how to study. They would know how to minister. And they would know how to heal or work miracles if that was their calling. Fascinating to consider. Matthew 6, 9 through 13 says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And I love Christ says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And that is a huge key to our prayer life. Understanding that we are to be seeking that God's will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. If we look at verse 7, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
knock and it will be open to you. What are we asking for? What are we seeking for? What are we knocking for? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18 says, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Whatever we ask as believers will be in conformity to the will of God. Whatever we seek will be a blessing from God's will, according to God's will. And when we are knocking to enter, it will be because we are drawn and driven to knock because it is according to the will of God. But let's look at this. From what perspectives or frames of mind might we pray? And the, re what the point I'm trying to make here is we may pray one way one day and another way a different day. We're going to play much, we're going to pray much differently when we're coming to Christ and the Holy Spirit is working in us through the gospel, then we're going to pray after we've been brought to belief and faith in Christ, and we're beginning to walk with him, and then our prayer life will continue to grow and mature and change the longer we're walking with Christ. So there are different perspectives and frames of mind that we will have in prayer, and we're giving examples of those in Scripture. We should ask as a beggar seeking alms at times a child in distress at other times, a condemned criminal seeking mercy. That's usually how we should feel when we're coming to Christ. As one who sees and hears through eyes and ears that have never seen or heard before, we're praising the Lord for the blessing that we can see and hear him. And as a new and glorious creature brought from death in sin to life in Christ, and then there's times that we pray to Christ because he's our dearest and closest friend. I'll give you some examples here. If we look at Mark 10, 46 through 52, it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So this is a man who's begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now notice he says, have mercy on me. He doesn't say, Jesus, son of David, can you make me, can you give me the ability to see? Can you cure my blindness? He says, have mercy on me. I'm going to define mercy a little more clearly here shortly, but, but that's interesting. Doesn't ask for sight. He says, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So now he asked for the recovery of his sight, but he began with asking for mercy. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So we see here that this is a man, he knows he's in need of mercy. And he knows that if he's granted that mercy that only the Lord can give him, that part of that blessing of grace will be that his eyes are open to see. So he's blessed with mercy. His eyes are open to see. And it's because he was faithful and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But And then it says, and he immediately recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. That's a picture of the transformation in a believer.
we recover our sight. We can now hear what we could never before understand. And we begin to follow Christ on the way. Luke 18, 10 through, 10 through 13 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now notice the Pharisee would be the respected, you know, big on social media. Everybody knows his name. He's famous. He's got a lot of money. He's got a power. He's got a lot of power. He's got political clout. He's well-respected. The tax collector was looked at as a criminal, as somebody that was probably known as a habitual liar. Somebody that was always swindling, getting tax people out, taxing people more than, than, than was going to go to the Roman Empire because he was skimming off the top constantly. So two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he's pr literally praying and praising himself rather than praising God. He's saying, thank you, God, for making me so superior to everyone else and for letting me be recognized for how great I am. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He went up to pray because he had been brought to understand the true condition he was existing in. He had had his sins shown to him, and he realized that without the mercy of God, he would be dead in his sins and trespasses and face eternal condemnation, and the only thing that could save him was mercy. If you don't understand your need for mercy, then you don't understand the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, you don't understand the need for Jesus Christ as your Savior. Mercy is sought when we are guilty beyond doubt, without hope against the wrath of the one we harmed, and we are left with nothing but pleading for mercy from the one who should condemn and punish us. I'm going to repeat that. Mercy is sought when we are guilty beyond doubt, without hope against the wrath of the one we harmed, and we are left with nothing but pleading for mercy from the one we should, who should condemn and punish us. We are seeking mercy from the one we have harmed. And folks, I'll tell you, this is why the modern church is polluted with heresy and why man is worshipped rather than the holy sovereign God. There is no understanding of the holiness of God, the true condition of man, and our dire need for mercy. When you understand this, you'll begin to see how absolutely amazing God's grace is, and you will beat your breast and say, God have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. We should seek us for the most precious thing that has been lost, so precious you would gladly sacrifice everything to possess it. Seek in prayer and in prayerful meditation in God's word. Pray for the desire to seek if needed and that your heart may be broken for Jesus Christ. If, if, if you read that title, Asking, Seeking, and Knocking, and you're saying to yourself, my prayer life is just so monotonous and so dead. I say the same prayers day in and day out. It just seems sterile and clinical and nothing's happening. Pray that you would know what it is to truly ask to truly seek, to truly knock, that the Lord would break your heart for him in such a way that you couldn't help but praying this way. Pray to see more and to hear more of the Lord. 
don't neglect the Psalms. One of the greatest antidotes we have to debt to a dead prayer life is the blessing of the Psalms. Use them as lessons in how to pray. There will be prayers for you when your mind is in turmoil and you seek for peace in Jesus Christ. Psalm 34, four through seven says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Amen. Knock is one who desires more than anything to enter the house of our heavenly father. Uh, this is a, a quote from C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. Uh, again, he, he's helping me make the point. Knock is one who desires more than anything to enter the house of our Heavenly Father. C.S. Lewis writes on page 31 of The Weight of Glory, And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. And what Lewis is referring to is that shy, persistent inner voice that just constantly tells us that there is something we must have, something that must be filled and fixed that is not within us. But the point that Lewis is making is the world constantly strives to convince us that the world can give you that which is lacking, and it can't. It's only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Luke 17, 21 says, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Everything we need, we are blessed with in Jesus Christ. To only ask is not enough. Being blessed with the Holy Spirit, we are driven passionately to seek the Lord and to knock on the door of heaven for more and more of what only the Lord can bless us with. And what is that? It's himself. Asking and seeking and knocking all end up in one place, the arms of Jesus Christ. Again, from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, this one on page 41. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. That's where joy lies. That's where peace and rest lies. Venture through Jesus's ministry in the scriptures and take note of all who sought him and came to him. So many reasons, yet one focus. What was it? Him. We must not only ask, but seek, plead, and wrestle with God until we come to embrace Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, 8 says, For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Asking, seeking, and knocking are the fruit of regeneration, of being born again. Those who are Christ live in a way and move towards something the world cannot understand. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest because you have what you have always sought and needed. Mark 10, 13 through 15 says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What's he talking about? We're giving up all of that pride that we build up over the years as we grow. All the pride that we gain as humans in ourselves, the self-righteousness that we think we've acquired, that has to all be stripped away and we become little children before God, our Father. A quote that I've probably shared with you guys before. It's not a quote, but it's uh, when you read about the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the world at the end of World War II, and he made a stand against Hitler and the Nazis and was hung for not giving in to them and for and for standing for the cause of the gospel. His closest friend said he was a child, a giant among men, but a child before God. And I've always loved that because we will not be a true giant among men. We will not do great things in this life as men, unless we are children before God. That's just the way it is. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We're coming to Christ. We're asking. We're seeking. We're knocking. And he will always answer. He will always help us find him. And he will open the door of salvation to us. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give thing, good things to those who ask him? Come to God as your heavenly father. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isaiah 66.13 says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. But he says, If you then who are evil, that seems uh, insulting to hear that. It seems like it's a derogatory statement, but I think we have to understand it in context. And what he's referring to is the total depravity of the fallen human nature. To understand the context of evil here, we must consider the absolute perfect holiness of God. Our very best is darkness compared to the light of God's glory, of the Lord's glory. The reason he says you who are evil is because even the best of us who absolutely love and adore our children and give them every gift we can, that, that appears as evil when it's set next to the glorious perfection and holiness and mercy and love and grace of God. That's, what he's, that's why he uses that word evil. But in that, we see that Jesus spoke the truth clearly and boldly without a concern for political correctness or people's feelings. He said things as they needed to be said the gospel without compromise. The gifts from the Father are necessities for disciples. If you look back over Jesus' sermon so far in the, Beati in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and we, we review the Beatitudes and topic headings in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see things like righteousness, sincerity, purity, humility, wisdom, grace, and love. In 1 Corinthians 12, 31, Paul writes, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. And Paul is speaking of the way of love. So the things that we will seek if we are true believers are not self-centered worldly things. We will, we will seek things that are righteous, sincere, 
pure, humble, wise, graceful, and loving. The gospel awakens in the born-again believer an understanding of their deep need for the things of God. Luke eleven thirteen says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Holy Spirit is what drives us in asking and seeking and knocking. If we ask, our Father will give us so much more than we ask. We can't even comprehend what he has in store for us. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We have no idea how glorious our future is in the Lord. Our eyes must be on the Lord, on his eternal love, his eternal joy, not the things of this world, because they are fading, they will fail, and they will be blown away at Christ's return. So back to the four original questions. How do we know when God answers us? How do we see the answer that he's giving us? How do we know we're doing God's will rather than our own will? And how do you know when a do- how do we know when a door has been opened for us? James 4, 3 through 5 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions literally on your pleasures. You adulterous or idolatrous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us? Folks, all the things, all the questions are answered when we apply them to the will of God. We will know when God answers us because the answer will clearly be according to his will. We will see the answer because it will shine in the glory of his will. We'll know we're doing God's will rather than our own because we can test it against his word. And how do we know when a door has been opened for us? Because it will lead us closer to Christ and not farther from him. And that will be in conformance to God's will. John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Quite often when faced with a decision, you can say, is this going to bring bring glory to the Father and the Son? And that will help you make the decision. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We will do nothing meaningful on our own. It is always in Christ. John 15, 7 and 8 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John 16, 24 says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He will give us so much more than we need, and we will be filled with joy as we receive it. The glory of God and our joy as his children are bound together in prayer. We are poor and needy and can do nothing apart from Christ. The more we know of Christ, the more we will be fruitful 
in prayer. God's glory and our joy. Augustine said, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. So the point that Augustine's making there is everything in our life will be a blessing if it is for Christ's glory. There will be nothing in our life that's not affected by our relationship with Christ. And if it's not affected by a relationship with Christ or it's contrary to that, it will be repulsive to us. And we do everything according to God's will. First Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18 says, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God-centered and not self-centered is the life of a believer, increasing our joy in Christ and Christ working in us. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Folks, meditate on this and pray for understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word today. We thank you for the blessing of prayer communion with you and fellowship with you. And Lord, I just ask that you would bless every person that hears this message with the truth of the gospel, that you would open more hearts and minds to see you, to hear you, and to understand you. And I just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching today, folks. Sorry for the noise in the background. Something's making my dog angry. If you get a chance, please visit elephantwalk.net. We've got uh, new products being added right now. Uh, just some amazing new items that we just brought in from Kenya. If you type the way, all lowercase, no spaces between the words at checkout, you'll receive 10% off and the proceeds help to go support uh, the way R122 ministry here and in Kenya. If you'd like to visit our website, just go to the way r122.org. You can subscribe to the podcast at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Just search for the way radio in the search field. You can find us on Rumble at the way r122. And uh, please pray about and consider donating. Just go to the way r122.org. Go to the donate page. Uh, my friend Patrick, he is seeking to uh, put more of a permanent structure in place of his church right now. It's just a metal building uh, with very simple um, uh, rough lumber. And he's looking to be able to build something that's that's more substantial and more permanent so he can help us grow his church there. So we really want to engage in helping him in that effort. And I'll be sending out more information about that to our newsletter soon. But please can uh, pray about uh, supporting the ministry. Uh, monthly support helps us so much, but any gift is a blessing. All right. We will be back here same time, same place next week. God bless you guys.